The Danish word for design is formgivning, which means to give form to that which has not yet been given form. In other words, to give form to the future. And of course, more specifically, to give form to the world that you would like to find yourself living in, in the future, which is an incredible human superpower to imagine and create the future we would like to live in. One of the kind of best examples of something that goes from being in the realm of pure imagination to being hardcore reality is, uh, is this waste to energy power plant in Copenhagen. That's the cleanest waste to energy power plant in the world. So clean that we could turn its roofscape into a man-made ski slope, complete with hundreds of trees and a ski lift system that has the tallest climbing wall in the world. It means that my one-year-old son won't remember a time when you didn't go skiing on the roof of the power plant and when its facade wasn't the climbing wall. For him and his entire generation, that's going to be their new normal. That's the reality that they're going to grow up in. And when they start making, coming up with crazy ideas for their future, that's the starting point that they jump from. We have this kind of incredible optimism about our power as human beings and as architects, as form givers, to give form to the future. At Frontier, we're building out a practice and idea called purpose design. It's tricky. People have a hard time understanding what design is, let alone a new kind of design. Architecture, on the other hand, is something most people understand. But the kind of architecture that Bjarke Engels performs with his firm Big goes a step further and often attempts to bring about explicit positive change that shifts perception of what architecture can do. The part of purpose design that we struggle to explain is that purpose alone is not enough. You need inspiration or design to create a desire for change. Engel's architecture is all about inspiration. This conversation was recorded right before the pandemic, but its ideas are as relevant as ever. In fact, Engels has been thinking this way for a while. He's an optimist architect, but he's under no illusions. The great architect Ludwig Mies van der Rohe is known for the saying, less is more, which has been borrowed by countless other professions as a way to think about the power of minimalist philosophy. Bjarke's own yes is more philosophy is grounded in the idea that the best antidote to a world of challenges is to approach it with an attitude of informed positivity. Bjarke sees a bigger opportunity in bringing varying ideas together where the sum is greater than the parts. His power station in Copenhagen brings together a climbing wall, an artificial ski hill, and a power plant into one building. That kind of thinking is optimistic on many levels. But again, it's an optimism driven by an eye on the bigger picture. I mean, of course, to be optimistic and even to say that things are consistently going better and better on many aspects is not to say that everything is perfect, right? Or that there isn't like incredible things to address. But I think the general sort of proposition is that things are in fact consistently going better on almost all accounts, except global warming. If we put that on pause for five seconds and then just look at poverty, child mortality, life expectancy, sort of all of those things, things are actually consistently going better. But there's still like, of course, a lot to do. This kind of nostalgia we have about how it was better in the good old days is completely made up. We're being bombarded with all kinds of instant news and instant images from everywhere. So it's hard for us to sort of discriminate because our perception has not evolved to 
to, to get all these kind of, this kind of remote information. One of the things we've been looking into lately is why do we seem so incapable of dealing capably with climate change? Human beings have historically proven to be incredibly capable of taking on, you know, multi-generational endeavors, costing massive resources in terms of materials and money and time and skill. A great example are the cathedrals. Notre Dame that just burned 181 years of construction. The great cathedral in Köln took, I believe, 623 years to build. Uh, it was started in the year 1200 and something. It was finished in 1880. Barcelona too, right? Yeah, you know, Sagrada Familia, we almost laugh at the Catalans, but uh, they've only been building for 137 years. Mm -hmm. So they're not supposed to be, uh, you know, more than maybe two thirds done, right? It's a cathedral after all. So how could we do that? Of course we could do that because we had blueprints. We had a master plan. One of the problems of climate change is that it's been very much the domain of scientists, climate scientists, They are, of course, incredibly good at science, but they're academics. So they're not really entrepreneurs. They're not very good at making things happen. They're good at understanding them and studying them. And then politicians, because of our electoral system, politicians have a horizon of four years to the next re-election, maybe eight. But then also, like, the mayors or the presidents, often they have to step down after eight years. And companies are on quarterly cycles. And, excellent. So there is... There isn't really anyone involved that has the kind of perspective and experience with giving form to the future. Our projects, like we worked, the Waste Energy Power Plant took almost a decade to do, and that's typical for an architectural project. And just like you can apply architectural thinking at the scale of a building or a city block or a neighborhood or a city or a region or a country, of course you can apply it at the scale of a planet. So we actually started work on what we call the master plan for the planet. So saying, you know, if we were doing a master plan for a city or for a country, what would be the things we would do? You know, you look at the history, you know, you, you sort of understand the parameters, you look at the key criteria. Earth has a, an annual energy bill. It's 153,000 terawatt hours, but that's today at around 7 billion. Once we're 10 billion, which would be by 2050, And let's say they're all going to have the same quality of life as Singapore, which is where you have the highest life expectancy, the lowest child mortality, there's some, the, the highest general sort of distribution of wealth. Then that energy bill is going to be 750,000 terawatt hours. So that's what we need to design for. It's just clear that it's completely different than some kind of political speech. Because right now it's, it's all so fragmented. Toronto has a 2050 plan, Copenhagen has a 2025 plan. There's all these kind of partial goals, but no one sees how it sums up. And actually there is, recently, we have actually successfully made a globe-spanning network, the World Wide Web. It took us, let's say, 50 years to get that one installed. So we can do it. What's in a name? The thing about inspiration-led positive change is that it has to actually inspire. And it has to be catchy. People are bombarded with information. You see over 30 brand names before breakfast. How do you cut through that? If you're going to change behavior, you need to change the way you connect with people. Ingalls is a master of catchy. His master planet project says everything you need to know in the name itself. It's clever. It captures your interest and it sets your expectation. This way of thinking is essential to his work. But the flip side of catchy is gimmicky. 
Human beings, while we can be seduced into inspirational, clever, shiny things, also have a fundamental, built-in bullshit detector. How do you walk that line between catchy and kitschy? And what's the benefit of this kind of verbal invention? Especially in collaborative efforts, being capable of naming ideas is incredibly useful. It was funny because like, I was studying in Barcelona when I was like 21 and 22, and I was living with a Catalan intellectual who was so fascinated by German philosophers. He was convinced that for a Spanish-speaking person, because their language is a kind of evolved version of Latin, they can't hear the origin of many of their words. Mm-hmm. Whereas in German and Danish, you can hear that a word, right. it's called begriff, concept. It's basically a combination of two other words put together as a single word, and now it has a new meaning, but you can somehow etymologically trace it back. Moving that forward, one of the most powerful abilities we have as thinkers is to create new concepts. Gilles Deleuze believed that that was the purpose of philosophy, and in his book, What is Philosophy? He says, the artist philosopher's primary purpose is to create new concepts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you can do when you bring words together. In design and in architecture, everybody will know what a design narrative is. Mm -hmm. And typically a design narrative is some kind of retroactive way of communicating what it is that you already did. Mm -hmm. So like once that you finished all the work and somehow you arrived here, and now we have to, uh, you know, explain it to the rest of the world, not the client. Uh, So you come up with some kind of a story and you see if it works, right? Mm -hmm. I think what we've done, which is definitely not always the case with some of our colleagues, is to almost turn it the other way around. When we work and when we design something, we constantly reiterate the narrative as a form of design critique. So we start by identifying, you know, what are the greatest problems we need to address? What are the greatest potentials we can sort of unleash? What are the core values? And then with that in mind, we start telling each other looking at the different uh, design proposals, what would be the narrative here and how does it link to the core principles, the core values we've already identified as critical for the project? And then as we sort of reiterate the narrative, we can hear, ah, or like an idea comes up, ah, so let's try that. So then we go back, we try some more, we come back. And in that kind of constant re-narration, designing the narrative becomes designing the project and vice versa. So rather than having to come up with a design narrative, The method is already narrative design. The narrative is actually the curating, guiding uh, creative force. Stories then are key. They're not just words. They're guiding creative forces. This idea is central to design and in opposition to how many of us understand the world. When bombarded with branding and marketing, we are trained to try to see past the story to the truth behind it. We've been conditioned to doubt clever stories because we're pummeled by advertising, where the words used and the product they describe are often at odds. There's an old McDonald's print ad that shows a Big Mac with the words Height of Perfection in big letters across the top of the page. Do we truly believe that a McDonald's hamburger is the height of perfection? Is it any wonder why we distrust a lot of the advertising we hear or read in our daily lives? What changes, though, if the words and stories are true? If a building that converts waste to power is designed in a way that creates a ski hill on top in Copenhagen and gets called the Copen Hill, is that slick marketing speak? Or is it a more interesting way to describe the truth? It's clever, but our first instinct is to doubt it. 
What if we hijacked the skill of advertisers in manipulating words and powerful stories as a way to draw attention to truly world-changing projects? What happens when the narrative becomes a guiding creative force for positive change? And what about the skeptics who will remain skeptical? How can you bring people who are doubters or who prefer the status quo into a more inspiring and sustainable way of living? When I was 18, in my last year of high school, in Denmark you have to have a major in high school. My major was political science. In the kind of last semester of the last year, you have to do a third year report. And you do it in your major. This was in January 1993. So my sort of political science report became environmental policy on global, regional, national, local, and individual level as a follow-up on the 1992 Rio conference where they kind of announced Agenda 21 based on the Groenland report and the whole concept of sustainability and sustainable development that was like launched by Groenland. So somehow I was already pretty well-versed in sustainability as I graduated from high school and and started architecture school, not knowing that it was going to be that incredibly relevant. But one of the things that struck me was that back then there was also like this kind of distinction between the growth optimists and the the doomsday sayers, right? That people that believe that everything has to stop. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite clear that neither side is wrong, but I think the people that say growth has to stop, it's not a viable proposition because... You forget all the good things that have come with growth, like the decline in child mortality, the increase in life expectancy, like healthcare and education, uh, and, you know, also for the entire female gender that is often sacrificed when growth and prosperity is not available. So we're just forgetting, like, all the incredible accomplishments that we've achieved. For too long, we've taken an earnest approach to environmental sustainability. Somehow, if it wasn't serious feeling, we didn't trust it. Take electric cars. For decades, they were seen as fringe options for tree huggers. When the first Tesla Roadster came out, it was this clear example that an electric car shouldn't be some kind of a car light or car minus. It should be the coolest fucking sports car on the market with the fastest acceleration and the most beautiful design. And then, of course, like gradually the other models came, but like already from the first one, it was clear that this was kind of a whole new idea that the sustainable could actually be cooler, faster, more beautiful than the non-sustainable. We use the Tesla example because most people have heard of it. It's a great example of a different way of thinking about our big challenges, gas-powered cars being one. Tesla is leading a movement towards electric cars that doesn't rely on people having their intentions in the right place. You don't need to be a tree hugger to love a Tesla, and that's the point. How can we get to a place where the better and more responsible way of doing things is also the most inspiring and exciting? While Bjarke has been thinking this way for a long time, the origins of his philosophy share common DNA with our own thinking at Frontier and our shared experience of working with a common mentor. In 2004, we did a major collaboration with Bruce Mao where he came to Denmark. We were commissioned to do the Danish pavilion at the Architecture Biennale in Venice together. We showed Bruce around our office also and and we ended up showing him a little study we had done on Danish harbors. There was this fact that in the sort of post-industrial cities, the industrial harbors are slowly shutting down. You have like bigger and bigger facilities, so you have fewer of them. So you free up a lot of area. And the 12 biggest cities in Denmark are all port cities. And we were just like beginning to look at what if instead of sort of accepting this kind of gradual decline and gradual transformation, what if we would actually 
create a new, we call it a super harbor, place it at the entrance to the Baltic Sea, together with the bridge to, between Denmark and Germany, as an artificial island in the middle. So with a kind of magical swoop, we could free up like immense amounts of real estate in all of the major cities of Denmark. We could make Denmark the new gateway to the entire Baltic Sea with a hinterland of like 300 million people because it's all of Russia and the former Soviet uh, countries. So rather than this sort of gradual decline, to turn it into sort of a massive game-changing event. And Bruce said, let's do this. Let's do seven of these. Let's redesign Denmark within seven different economies, one of them being the economy of movement. That's the super hopper. You know, you already have it. So uh, do one more. So which one should it be? And, and Bruce took Greenland as an issue. And the whole idea about the melting ice, that maybe the Greenland could sort of clench the thirst of Africa. And we picked energy. The challenge was to say, what if something? To imagine something that isn't if it was. So we came up with what if Denmark had an energy bill of zero? So what if you could design all of Denmark in such a way that, you know, all the checks and balances even each other out and you end up neutral? And at the time, we kind of cheated because it felt a little bit abstract and maybe we were too much architects at our core. But we thought, what if we take Denmark statistically and say, you know, in Denmark, there's this much housing, there's this much office, there's this much industry, there's this much agriculture, there's this much cultural institution, etc. And we boil it down to 100,000 square meters. That's a big building, but it's still manageable as architecture. If we can solve it there, we can also solve it at the full scale. We made it almost like a tissue sample of all of Denmark. And there we came up with this idea that maybe sustainability is not a political dilemma or a moral dilemma. Maybe it is simply a design challenge. What if there is a way where you can continue with the amazing quality of life that you've actually fought for and won, but because we've designed the way we deliver that quality of life differently, we're using different technologies, we're not wasting our byproducts, we're feeding them back into the human-made ecosystem, you can actually take long, warm showers and have a good conscience at the same time. So that came up with this idea of hedonistic sustainability, that a sustainable building or sustainable city is not just great for the environment, it can be amazing for the quality of life of the citizens. And it just so happened that our first project that we had just done two years before that was the Copenhagen Harbor Bath. It turned out that Copenhagen Harbor Bath is the perfect example of hedonistic sustainability because it shows that by having environmental laws in place that makes the harbor water clean, it's not only good for the fish, it's incredible for the people living in the city that they don't have to sit in their cars for hours to get to the beach. They can jump in the port in the middle of the city. And that became so clear that that's how you win. Not by scaring people or by forcing them to have this kind of incompatible reality that they're flying for work or they're flying on holidays. They know they shouldn't because supposedly flying is bad. Uh, no, no, no. You should have everything that you ever wanted but we should just deliver it in a way that is sustainable. Hedonistic sustainability is a catchy phrase. Maybe a bit obscure, but it captures the idea perfectly. Let's make a more inspiring and exciting world that's not just great for the environment, but amazing for the quality of life for the people who use it. Big is designing buildings, neighborhoods, cities, and you might even say the planet with this mindset. 
How might we apply that mindset to our organizations, our communities, and our governments? If big is doing the hardware, what about the software? How can we build the purpose of these organizations with a hedonistic sustainability mindset? That's the task of purpose design. It's about taking a design approach to traditional marketing, branding, strategy, and advertising. The idea is that if you can think like an architect, then you can design the way that people work and how they communicate. And if you can use the tools of marketing and advertising, then you can capture people's imagination and inspire them to change. Changing the way your company defines its mission, vision, and values in this way, using purpose design, helps you align your values with those of your employees in an environment where young graduates are demanding change. But it doesn't have to be boring. It can actually be a lot of fun. Learn more about Bjarka and Big at big.dk. To learn more about Frontier, visit frontier.is. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to know when our next episode is released. First Things First is hosted by me, Patty Harrington, and produced by Heather Goh, and edited by Brian Scholes. We're exploring the idea that change happens when people have better, more inspiring ways to change. Rather than telling people what not to do to address the big global challenges we're all up against, we should design more exciting products, services, and stories built on strong social and environmental foundations. Design can help us move faster to a more equitable world. First Things First is a Frontier podcast. Frontier is a purpose design office based in Toronto. We help organizations define, embody, express, and measure purpose and ambition. We also share stories where design is creating positive change. And we provide tools to those who constantly strive towards new and better places. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is.